This is the ActiveX Back Show from Edinburgh, Scotland's vibrant capital. Hosted by award-winning registered osteopath, author and all-round pain guru, Gavin Routledge. If you want relief or prevention of lower back pain or sciatica, and you want to be healthier, keep listening. The following programme should not be taken as medical advice, but for informational purposes only. Hi, Turner. Uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast, and it's great to meet you at last. No, thanks for having me along, Gavin. This is, this is going to be fun, I think. Yeah, I have to start this by thanking you very much for sending me your chair, one of your chairs. I'm lucky enough to have been, uh, about 10 days ago, in receipt of the Core 360 Aerial 2, I think it is. Right. I, I wish I could take credit for it, but there's a, a number of people here in Burlington, Vermont, that are for whom this is a passion project, some of whom are professional de- designers and bodywork people and physicians and physical therapists. And so it's really a labor of love on a part of a lot of people. But I'm, I get the privilege of pitching it to people like yourself. Yeah, great. We'll get into that very shortly. But just to set the scene, it's always helpful if the listeners can understand who, who Turner Osler is and, and where you've come from. What's your kind of backstory? It mystifies certainly my wife and me too, for that matter. I, I started out as a, like I got my undergraduate degree from Princeton in neurobiology and somehow I got distracted by a medical school. And then I did a surgical residency and then I did a trauma fellowship taking care of gunshot wounds and car wrecks and burns for 25 years. And then it's a young man's game to stay up all night and all the next day. So I, I got a master's degree in biostatistics and a grant for a few million dollars from the National Institute of Health here in the U.S. and started studying trauma epidemiology, trying to figure out which trauma centers had the best results and which were the laggards so that we could bring up the laggards and learn from the best kind of stuff. And when I switched from the peripatetic lifestyle of a trauma surgeon, running the OR and then the ICU and then down to the clinic and then off to the ER and then back to the OR. I just started doing trauma epidemiology. I was sitting for eight or 10 hours a day like the rest of America. I suddenly started having back pain. And I thought, how does that work? But because I'd been to medical school and because as a surgeon, you you just are a problem solver. Once you're in the OR, there's no one else. You have to figure it out. So I thought, how hard can it be to solve the problem of back pain? And I, I took a deep dive academically. And it, it turned out to be harder than I thought. There, a lot of people have worked on this problem for a long time, and there didn't seem to be a clear answer. I went to ergonomic conferences, and, and I talked to academics and read all the books and the literature. And it was, and then the penny dropped. I started reading anthropology. And it turns out cultures that don't sit in our crummy office chairs pretty much don't have back pain. Uh-huh. So that was the way into the problem for me. Yeah. Just out of interest along the way, did you come across Esther Gokali in that reading when you mentioned? Oh, yeah. No, I've swapped an email with her. And I, I'm, uh-huh. and her, her book is terrific. And I love those mm. pictures in her book. Mm. But she's more about just posture, have good posture and just do it. Whereas mm. it's a moment-to-moment problem and most people lose focus very quickly. Yeah. And so for me... It was really a problem of how do you help people find their best posture and then maintain it? Because maintaining one's posture consciously is almost impossible because your brain is off doing something else, your email or some spreadsheet or looking at your kid or who knows what. 
but it's very hard to keep thinking, oh, my posture, right? And the mm -hmm. times that's been attempted, I, I don't know if there's a, a, a company here in the United States called Upright, and they make a device that you, have, that you glue on the back of your neck, mm -hmm. and every time you slump, it like shocks you. It doesn't, it's not an electric charge, it's like a vibration mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. And um, I, I test all these things because I'm, I'm mm -hmm. endlessly curious, and uh, it's very irritating every time you pick up a pencil off the floor to be shocked. It's just, uh, it's a, but, but it's astonishing how often it goes off because your posture is, and, and so I'm, and I just recently read somewhere they've sold a half a million of these devices. So they're a $50 million company. There, there are people trying to very hard to solve this problem. But I think that just constantly reminding people consciously really isn't the, really isn't the key. The key is you want people to be reminded unconsciously at the spinal reflex level. So, you know, we had the idea that if you make a chair that's a little bit unstable, tips in all directions, eight or nine degrees, not a lot, but enough that as you felt, you, you, you have to balance on it. No one has ever fallen asleep on one of our chairs because you'd find yourself on the floor, right? You have to consciously, you have to have your spinal reflexes engaged with gravity constantly. Your brain can check out and look at your email or read a book, but your spine is constantly having a wordless conversation with gravity in the background. And as it's doing that, it's optimizing your posture. You know, it takes kids months, maybe a year, as long as a year to learn how to walk. And why does that take so long? Well, the answer is that it's very hard to walk. Keeping all of your bones upright and balanced is it's a very heavy lift. And kids, mm -hmm. even though they're short and even though their nervous systems are growing at breathtaking speed, they're laying down something like 100,000 new synapses a second. And so they're programming their nervous system in order to be able to walk gracefully. And, and there's from creeping to crawling to toddling to stumbling to walking mm -hmm. gracefully. So it takes a long time to develop and program those spinal reflexes to keep your gait upright and balanced. But mm -hmm. once it's in your nervous system, it's there forever. And mm -hmm. so we've discovered, and I think it's long been known, that if you just put people on, an un, on a slightly unstable surface, their spinal reflexes kick in and their posture reasserts itself perfectly. Their sternum comes up and their head comes back and the skull balances on the first two vertebrae, the atlas and axis, the shoulders relax. And within really 60 or 120 seconds, people adopt the posture of an advanced meditation student. You know, they're just perfectly balanced. And this happens without haranguing people or making them watch a video or shocking them or making them read a book or trying to remember. It's just a matter of letting their spine and its reflexes and their vestibular apparatus speak to gravity and then organize all the bones in their body in a way that works for them. Mm, absolutely. And I suppose perhaps an obvious question is, why does sitting lead to more lower back pain? I think sitting leads to lower back pain, not because of sitting per se, but because of the way we sit. Humans are a very interesting species because we have an immense need for energy to power our brains, which are just glucose hogs. And so we need resting postures to save energy as we're you know, waiting for the next thing to happen, speaking of our hunter-gatherer forebears. And so 
The posture that was adopted for most of human history when we were hunter-gatherers was squatting, where people balanced on top of their ankles. And when this has been studied in hunter-gatherer populations that still squat as a resting, active resting posture, like a Hadza in Tanzania, you can record muscular activity, and they're really quite muscularly active as they're balanced over their ankles. And this was the preferred posture for everyone in the West as well, up until about 1600. It's amazing that we know that humans squatted for most of their three million year history as hunter-gatherers. And then we know also when they stop squatting, because when people squat, their uh, tibia impinges on their talus bone of the ankle. And over time, it leaves an indentation. So by studying human remains, we can see when humans stop squatting. And looking uh, over the history of Europe by studying lots and lots of anthropologic remains, we know that people in Europe pretty much stopped squatting between 16 and 1700 about the time chairs came into use. Now, these were more likely benches or stools, and so they didn't cause a lot of mischief. But later, when we started having chairs that were enforced the 90-90-90 posture, 90 degrees at the ankle, 90 degrees at the knee, 90 degrees in, in the hips, and sat for long periods of time trying to lean against the backrest, this is an odd posture, which doesn't allow the spine to balance naturally. But it's fine to balance naturally. You have to have your knees lower than your hips so that you get your natural hollow back, your, your lumbar lordosis, which is the way we stand naturally when we stand, and also the way people who are good at squatting squat. I, 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 just a little sidebar. We Westerners can still squat when we are children. You watch any child learn to walk, and when they lose their balance, they just drop to a squat where they're quite comfortable. And they can sit there and eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich quite comfortable. But by the time they get to grade school or a little beyond, they have lost the ability to squat. And the reason is because we put them in these 90, 90, 90 chairs and force them to sit you know, all day long and at the dinner table in school. And they lose the ability to squat. And most of us can never get it back. Yeah. So squatting is a good position. Sitting is a bad position, but most of us Westerners will never be able to squat comfortably and, and watch Netflix. That's, that's just not possible for us anymore. Mm -hmm. And so that was the conundrum we faced, was that people must sit in the 21st century to do their jobs and enjoy their amusements and go to restaurants. And yet, um, sitting is a catastrophe. It causes people to sit slumps, which over the long term uh, causes them to develop a weakened core. They're sitting with bad posture, and ultimately, they develop back pain. And worse, they develop sitting disease, a metabolic set of consequences that's catastrophic in its own that we maybe can talk about later. Mm. So the, the key seems to be a way to keep – we're looking for a way to keep people moving while they're sitting. And the answer turns out to be, oh, you just have to make a chair that's a little unstable under the seat pan, and now people have to stay – to stay seated, they have to use big muscles to stay balanced. The internal external bike, the transversalis, the multipedis. These are big muscles, so they're burning glucose, but they're also constantly readjusting small micro readjustments to people's posture moment to moment. And in a very short time, by going through a series of these micro readjustments, people really come to their perfect, really advanced meditation, uh, perfect posture for their spine. And now they can pretty much go all day. 
we tell mm. people if they get one of our chairs to you know, keep it to 15 or 20 minutes the first day and then see how you feel. Because most people's cores are fantastically deconditioned from slumping in front of a computer eight hours a day rather than using their internal bony architecture to support mm. But we've got 85-year-old people happily sitting on our chairs, although it did take several weeks to kind of build back the core strength that's required. Yeah, there, there are quite a few threads I would like to pull on there, Turner. Let's maybe do a big one with this metabolic consequences of prolonged sitting. As you said, the average, whether it be American or Westerner, probably sits for eight to 10 hours a day. Some people even longer than that. What are metabolic consequences of that? To put it briefly, catastrophic. You know, the whole business of sitting is not something that humans are evolved to do. When we took that first fateful step, we were gatherers for millions and millions of years. But about three million years ago, we took the fateful step out onto the African savanna and became hunter-gatherers. And so now we were walking 5, 10, even 15 miles a day for the last three million years. And our, our biochemistry has come to expect this arrangement. And so... If you take away that exercise, your bad cholesterol goes up, your good cholesterol goes down, your insulin goes up, your all-cause mortality goes up. The epidemiology is very clear on this. It's been, we now know that the average person who sits eight hours a day loses two life years on average to sitting disease, which is a constellation of obesity, hypertension, heart disease, diabetes, and increased in all-cause mortality. That's an immense problem, and it's hiding in plain sight. We think chairs are normal, everybody sits on them, and no one sees them as a health threat. It's analogous, really, to the 1950s when everybody smoked, even doctors, and smoking wasn't seen as a problem. Nobody could imagine that smoking was causing emphysema and heart disease and lung cancer because everybody smoked, so how could it be a problem? Well, the answer is, if you just study the problem, you discover that it's immense. Similarly, I think we're going to find that, well, you may have heard the, the meme that sitting is the new smoking. Sitting is a catastrophic health threat that's sitting in plain sight. And presumably, we can't offset the harm that that causes by going to the gym for two hours a week. Now, that's the shocker, really. You would think that if at the end of work, you go to the gym and, and sweat heavily as you work out hard for an hour or two, that it would reset everything and you'd be fine, okay? But it turns out it's not lack of cardio that's at issue here. What's harmful is the mere act of sitting slumped and inert with your muscles gone electrochemically dark. Your muscles are not just motor units that move your bones around. That's the obvious thing that muscles do. But they also secrete a panoply of what's called small molecules called um, myokines that adjust various aspects of your physiology, your, and especially your lipoprotein lipase levels that you know, protect your arteries and, and also insulin and cholesterol and those things. The business of ha having your muscles active much of the day pays immense benefits. And it doesn't have to be a lot of activity. We can see clearly uh, people who are just about, who admit to being fidgeters in one terrific study out of, out of Great Britain, 
had lowered all-cause mortality. Just the business of sewing machine knee or tapping your fingers or squirming makes a big difference in your all-cause mortality, just that much activity. And so our chairs require that level of engagement in order to stay balanced and comfortable. And as a side benefit, your posture looks terrific and your back pain often is lessened or disappears. Yeah, yeah. Great. Another thread, and, and this is one for you for future reference when you're talking about the benefits of the chair, the fact that being on an unstable surface challenges your balance. I was listening to a podcast recently by Professor Andrew Huberman, who's out of Stanford. I believe he's a neurobiologist and ophthalmologist. And the podcast series was on learning and neuroplasticity. And he said, if, if you want to trigger or increase the potential for neuroplasticity, which is what we all want to do when we want to burn something, the best thing you can do is essentially unbalance yourself. Now, he had a number of recommendations within his protocols, but, but this was a key one, is that particularly before you start to engage in that learning activity, is to unbalance yourself. And I guess that's what your chair does. And pretty much constantly. We have the suspicion that this kind of activity may be extremely helpful to older people who are having trouble with balance as they walk. And in the trauma community, we know that falls are a catastrophic problem in the elderly because it can be the beginning of the end. Of people fall once or twice and finally they take a hard fall, they break a hip, now they're in the hospital, they get operated. They get pneumonia and maybe they don't get home. So the business of helping people have better balance as they're getting about in their day-to-day -day lives can have immense public health consequences. We don't have any data yet, but it's our suspicion that you know, merely by having people constantly work on their balance by being a little unbalanced as they sit, their balance improves. Certainly the strength necessary to maintain your posture. Mm, yeah, yeah. I, I just wanted to dig in a little to, or, or rather to clarify the, like the key benefits of this, of the chairs that you uh, developed. So one is this idea of being unbalanced, so having to balance oneself. And, and the other is the encouragement of an upright posture, of maintaining the normal kyphorhodotic alignment of the spine. I can use that technical term, apologies. And you recommend people achieve that partly by having the hips significantly higher than the knees. Mm -hmm. Right. No, there's a terrific book entitled The Chair by, oh my goodness, I'm blanking on her name now. She's a, uh, uh, it'll come to me later. Yeah. Sorry, say again. Uh, I can look it up, Turner, and I'll put a yeah. link to it in the podcast notes. Right. No, but in it, she has a terrific diagram of the interrelationship of the femur to the lower five lumbar vertebrae, L1, 2, 3, 4, 5. And because the psoas muscle connects L1, 2, 3, 4, 5 to the proximal femur, when the femur it, uh, drops below parallel, it pulls on the psoas muscle and gently reasserts the lumbar lordosis, which is the normal posture for the human low back. If your femurs are parallel, if your upper leg bones are parallel to the floor, it is almost impossible to have a normal lumbar lordosis. 
Now, chair designers have noticed this. If you put people in the 90 degrees at the ankle, 90 degrees at the knees, and 90 degrees at the hip posture, they immediately round their backs. They sit like mm -hmm. a cashew. And because this has been noticed to be an unusual posture, lumbar support was introduced, which just pushes the low back forward, trying mm -hmm. to reestablish the normal lumbar lordosis. But the posture that it reestablishes is basically impossible possible for any human to enjoy for more for more than a few minutes. And so people immediately scooch forward on their chair to, to get away from the lumbar support that they've paid extra money for. So we know that lumbar support is a workaround, trying to fix the problematic idea of sitting in a chair with everything at 90 degrees. Your hips cannot be at 90 degrees and have a normal lumbar lordosis. The hips really don't flex that far on their own. The only way to get the femurs parallel to the floor is to give up your lumbar lordosis, which is a catastrophic deal. You can get away with it for a few months or perhaps years or maybe decades, but ultimately it catches up with people. And this is why 80% of Westerners ultimately have back pain so severe they seek professional help. As a biologist, as an epidemiologist, as a doctor, it, it's stunning to think that the human spine, which was billions of years under development and in daily use for the last 3 million years, fails 80% of the time. How is that possible? It can't be that the spine is somehow wrong. What is it? What it is, we're sitting wrong. We are abusing our spines until finally they can't take it anymore. Yeah. Now, you probably have some comments to make, particularly as an epidemiologist on some of the research and the reviews of posture and, and its relationship to lower back pain, because I, I reviewed a lot of that literature when I was doing my master's in pain management. And, and, and a lot of those reviews indicate that there isn't a correlation between posture and mechanics and pain. D do you have comments on that? No, I'm aware of that literature. And the, the Correlates to pain turns out to be a very problematic thing for really every line of research. If you line up x-rays of people's backs and, and then ask and put them in two piles, normal and abnormal, and then ask the question, who, who of these people have back pain? You'd point to the abnormal x-rays and you'd be wrong about it randomly. But it turns out that what on an x-ray is not really much indication of whether people have common low uh, back pain non-specific back pain. So non-specific back pain seems not to have anatomic correlates. Yeah, you know, if you have metastatic prostate cancer or broken back or a herniated disc, yeah, yeah, that'll cause back pain. But that's not, most people, when you look, you don't find any of those things. They just have back pain. And every physician knows that give them pain medicine and they leave the ER and Pretty much none of them die and all of them feel better in a week or a month or, and life goes on without actually figuring out where the problem came from or actually solving the problem. Because once people begin to start having bouts of back pain, they probably will have more bouts of back pain. And the business of just giving them some narcotics so that they'll get out of the emergency room and limp home turns out to be a very terrible strategy because it's created who knows how many drug addicts, maybe many, and at least in the United States, more people die of drug overdoses than from gunshot wounds or from car crashes. 
So we yeah. know that the business of letting people have pain and just passing out on narcotics can have catastrophic consequences down the road. It's not enough to get people through the moment. We have to track down the real etiology, the real cause of the problem in order to solve it you know, once and for all, rather than putting on band-aids that can do more harm than good, like yeah. narcotics. Yeah, but this issue of not being able to demonstrate a correlation between sitting, the volume of sitting and back pain has always puzzled me because as a clinician, my experience and one of the questions we ask all of our patients and clients, call them what you will, is are you, are you worse for sitting, standing or walking? Is your back pain or sciatica and or sciatica worse for sitting, standing, or walking? And 72% of the last approximately 1,000 patients say sitting. They are either worse while they're sitting or they're worse when they get up from sitting. So we know on that anecdotal almost level or audit level that there is an association between sitting and back pain. And yet why is it these larger views of the literature don't don't see that correlation. It's hard to measure back pain. I was a trauma surgeon and did trauma epidemiology for a long time, which is great because people either live or die and there's not much argument about whether somebody's dead or not. You pretty much can work that out. Whether somebody's back pain is better or worse is a very dicey thing because you have to ask them and they have to fill out a Likert scale and better in the morning, worse in the evening. It's a difficult outcome to work with. But what we know from the anthropology literature is that in cultures where people don't sit on our chairs, places where people still sit in traditional ways like Korea or Vietnam or Japan, back pain is much, much less common. And they, these populations have the same spine as the rest of us. There hasn't been time for their spine to somehow evolve away from the spines that we in the Western world have. So I, th I think the onus is pretty clearly on the fact that people sit a lot. And that's at least a major contributor to the whole business of back pain. And when you watch people sit, you can see that the posture that they're spending immense amounts of time in is not the posture that their spine signed on for. Okay. So if sitting is such a big problem metabolically and for the lower back, why don't we, if we are someone who has to stay still for our occupation, why don't we just stand? Standing seems like the opposite of sitting, but really standing is only the linguistic opposite of sitting. If you watch people at a standing desk, they're not like doing Tai Chi. They lock a hip and they lean on the desk and that's where they are. So they're locked in all day pretty much without moving. The opposite of sitting is actually moving. And whether you move by doing Tai Chi or walking or sitting on a chair that requires that you move constantly to adjust your balance. Moving is the opposite of sitting. We know that standing, so people say, oh, standing desk, we got it. There's serious problems with that. First of all, standing is not a comfortable posture for most people. I've spent a lot of time standing on rounds as medical students and residents recite the lab work for the day kind of thing, and then we move on to the next patient. And you can stand for five or 10 minutes, but pretty soon you've got one foot on the wall or the other foot, or you're leaning against the wall or you're squirming. Standing is hard because we're not really designed to stand for long periods of time. And it turns out that standing is bad for us physiologically. If you've ever stood for a long time and, and then checked your pre-tibia region by 
pushing firmly in right in front of your tibia, your lower leg bone, you can leave a fingerprint deeply embedded into your flesh, which is where lymph has leaked out and saturated, waterlogged your subcute, your the space beneath your skin. Standing allows water to leak out of your, your circulatory system. It also slows the return of blood to the heart because when your muscles and your legs are moving as you're walking or on an active chair, muscles squeeze the veins and the veins squeeze the blood. And because there are uh, valves in the deep veins, that blood makes it way back, its way back to the heart. The, the muscular activity of the legs actually pumps blood back to the heart. When people stand, the, the veins stretch because there's a column of blood from the right atrium all the way down to the ankle until finally the valves are no longer competent. They don't reach each, the lips of the valves don't reach each other. And as a result, the blood is just pooling in the lower extremities. All this comes to a head when it turns out that in a terrific study by Smith et al., 2019 American Journal of Epidemiology, they followed 7,500 people, half of whom were standing, half of whom were sitting for their day. And those who spent the day standing had twice the rate of heart attacks. So the business of trying to solve, oh, it's fine, I'll just stand. You're not really designed to stand. And it turns out there are extremely serious downsides because a heart, one heart attack can spoil your whole day. The idea that we've in the United States, massively adopted standing desks without really studying them first is, it will have, well, has already had catastrophic public health consequences. But the deal really seems to, Hippocrates famously said, man's best medicine is walking. We've understood for thousands of years that walking is really what humans ought to be doing some or maybe most of the day. And it can be as little as get up and walk for two minutes every half hour, and most of the problems go away. Problem is most people aren't disciplined enough or their workflow doesn't allow them to stand up and go for a walk every, for two minutes every 30 minutes. But here's a very interesting thing. It turns out people think walking has something to do with your legs, but I think that's just wrong. And you can see this if you look up on YouTube, there's a terrific video of a guy um, walking quite comfortably who has no legs. You know, he, he was born with a congenital agenesis of the femur, so he just doesn't have any leg bones. But he's striding along quite comfortably, you know, walking with good form, posture, and balance on his ischial tuberosities, on the sitting bones on the lower part of his hip. His strides are quite short. They're only three or four inches long, but he walks with good uh, posture and grace, which shows that walking isn't about your legs. Your legs just amplify. Walking really is something that happens with the spine and the pelvis. And that's exactly what active chairs do. They allow people's spine and pelvis to be free so that they can be walking as far as their spine and pelvis are concerned without their legs taking them anywhere. So mm. I like to say that our chairs allow people to walk without the bother of deciding where to go. Yeah. Great leading Turner. So, your chair, which, yeah, this has been the product of a lot of thinking and no doubt experimentation and iteration and so on. O over how long have you been doing that? About five years since I dove into the problem, and and I, and when I never would have solved it except I was in a makerspace here in Burlington, Vermont, and I. I came in with an idea and a couple of guys with real 
design experience. They graduated from Pratt Institute and they worked in New York City for decades. And, and they could see that I had a good idea. And they could also see that I was hopeless. And so they, because I didn't get out much. I was in the OR for the last 25 years and I didn't know anything about design or manufacturing or business or any of that stuff. So they took me aside and said, doctor, let us help you. And I, I said, no, you, you don't really understand. I'm in this to lose money. You know, I, you know, I want these things to be so goddamn cheap that anybody can have them. Mm -hmm. And they looked at me and they said, we're in. Because these are, these are the right kind of, these are my kind of people. So really with their design input and untold other people who dove in to help us, we had a serviceable design within a year. And now we've got really rock solid uh, design that we've sold 5,000 of these things. And because they're so weird, no one would buy one, except we say, if you don't like it, send it back. We'll pay the postage both ways and give your money back. And, and people think that's generous, which really, is because only about 4% of these chairs come back to us. People love them. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. So as, as I said at the beginning, I've had this about 10 days. I have a collection of chairs. I have saddle stools. I have a ball chair. I've sat on large balls, small balls, all sorts of different chairs. I have wobble cushions that we put on top of conventional chairs. And Tara, this is my favorite chair. Obviously, we will put links in the show notes to, to your website and so on. And, and I'll also, with your permission, put an actual image of the chair in the podcast. But I'm, I'm actually holding one in my right hand at the moment. I've lifted this up off the ring. One, one other aspect to it that I love is it's so light. It's so incredibly portable. It's about eight kilos. Right. Um, now it's, and it's tiny. It's, it disappears under people's desks. It does. Uh, I got such a... The first time I got up from it and pushed it to one side because I had something to do, I shot across the room <laughs> and bashed against the wall because I'm used to ha having to give a chair a good shot. A anyway, in terms of more detail, you just look at the images that we post in the podcast. If you describe the, the rocking mechanism term. <laughs> yeah, if I could describe the rocking mechanism. The rocking mechanism is a new geometric solid, which I discovered. And it turns out that you can own a geometric solid. So we have a patent on this shape. And the shape is, this will be of no help to anyone, but it's the volume of intersection of two cylinders intersecting at right angles with non-coincident axes and possibly different radii. <laughs> what it is, it's curved on top uh, and then it's curved underneath, but the curves are 90 degrees Mm -hmm. uh, with respect to each other. And so a flat surface on top rocks in one direction and that the whole mechanism can rock on a lower surface, 90 degrees opposed. And because rocking adds as vectors, it, it allows really effortless rocking in any direction with no sense of where the middle is. So yeah. it really feels more like floating than anything else it's a feeling i don't get tired of really i've been you know sitting mm -hmm. on one of these things for five years now and i haven't mm -hmm. gotten bored yet no and the i suppose one thing that may challenge people is that the actual sitting surface is really quite small but as you and i know the distance between your ischial tuberosities so the bones that people often refer to as sitting bones and I keep pointing out to them, they did not evolve to be sat upon. They are for the attachment of your hamstring muscles. But those sitting bones are really only, 
I don't know, he says feeling zone about 12 centimeters apart. And it's the same in men and women. It's shocking yeah. how consistent the sitz bones are. And because that's where humans bear weight when they're sitting, your mm -hmm. chair can be quite diminutive. Mm -hmm. And still, because it's providing bony support, and then the rest of you hangs off of the bones. And what happens to the, to the uh, flesh uh, under your skin is really less relevant. We, but we've had a number of people say, boy, it looks awfully narrow. Said, oh, it's plenty of room for your ischial tuberosities, your sitting bones, which is all you need. But in a, in a bow to uh, people's reasonable expectation that a chair be as big as they are, we've got another version with a slightly wider seat that kind of you know, seems more normal. But at first, we were eager to make a chair as minimalist as we could that would do everything, weigh nothing, and store invisibly. We can't quite meet all of those exactly, but that was the goal. And also, we wanted something that would help people with their posture and let them get exercise while they're sitting. And it had to be not ugly, right? It had to not be so ugly no one would want it. We worked hard to, to make it nice. And then we won a design competition, a design awards competition in Europe in 2020. And all of these other chairs are designed to look good. We started with a chair that solves a problem. And turns out it looks good enough that we won a design award. Yeah, I can see why. Mine is in gold leather, but black leather with a very shiny red handle for the up and down mechanism. And yeah, I would agree it's a, it's a I don't know, I can't kind of go as far as saying it's a thing of beauty. It's certainly functionally a thing of beauty. Yeah. That, that was that was that's where the design guys came in. I just invented the weirdo geometric shape, and the design guys said, "Here, let us work on the seat a little bit." That's what mm -hmm. people are going to see. Yeah, of course. Who is it not for? Initially, I was concerned that it would be thought of as a way to treat acute back pain because we get calls from people in the throes of an acute back spasm, begging us to send them a chair and ship it overnight. And the idea that I'm uncomfortable with the idea that people think of it as, a, as acute therapy for back pain. I'm not sure that's where its strength lies. I, for sure, it's great prophylaxis. People are, you know, keep their posture correct and strong and their core strong and developed. These chairs are really the, the simplest way forward. And you only have, yeah, if, if you want core strength, and you plan to go to the gym or swim or do Pilates, you have to make the choice to go to the gym or swim or do Pilates every day. If you just change the dynamics so you get rid of your crummy, slumpy office chair and put an active chair under your desk, now you get your core straightened out and work out every day without having to decide to do it. You just build it into people's environment, and then it protects them for the rest of their lives. Winston Churchill said, we shape our environment once, and then it shapes us forever. Mm. So if you allow a crummy office chair into your office, it's going to keep shaping your posture for the rest of your life. But if you can make the switch to a chair that lets you sit with balanced posture and get a little exercise every waking moment, you get the benefit every moment. Yeah. Do you encourage uh, wobbling? Right. No, we, we encourage people to let the chair cause them to find their perfect posture. That guarantees a core workout, just staying balanced on the chair. But we find that people every 10 or 20 or 50 minutes you know, want to just play games. They want to do a little butt dancing or salsa or stretching or 
would make hip circles or head circles. So there's lots of games you can play on the chair, which are a great way to stretch. We have one chiropractor who loves our chairs and made a little video he calls for the core, for kind of exercises to do on our chair when you're bored with your spreadsheet or whatever. So, you know, there's scope for using it as like a low-grade exercise machine. Mm-hmm. And then we have one Pilates instructor who, she just couldn't help herself and upped her game. And she's like doing push-ups and handstands on the thing. <laughs> Not necessarily recommended, but just to say, you can engage with our chair at all different levels. Merely sitting on it is a lot for, is plenty for most people because it helps with their posture and their core strength and keeps their, their muscles active all day. But for those with um, higher ambitions, there's more to be done. We, we have a couple of, and you know, these are just videos that were contributed by people, and we put them up on our website about this Jason the chiropractor here in Burlington made one he calls for the core. And there, there are different ways to engage with it. Yeah, I'm intrigued because I frequently promote what I call sitting wobbling to mm-hmm. clients, patients. As you said, we evolve to walk rather than stay still. So while I, I definitely am on board with your idea of trying to find your balance point and all the muscles that you're going to engage in that process, I also like to encourage people to move while they're sitting. So I'm intrigued from, if you like, a warranty perspective. I mean, how, how much moving do you think we can do on this without breaking something? No, so I built a robot to test them and put it through 4 million cycles and couldn't break it. Then we took a couple to a middle school and had kids jump up and down on them. And the kids managed to break them within a month. So we had to go back to the drawing board and put in some tilt limiters to make sure it doesn't stretch too far. So if you look at your chair, you'll find there are four tilt limiters around the perimeter to protect it from middle school children. Yeah, yeah. I've explored those limits. So with those tilt limiters in... We should be good for a few years of use. Right. No. And we, we tell people we, we haven't had these things out in the world, but for two or three years, don't really know the lifespan of the motor mounts that hold everything together. So we encourage people to check them every year or so. And if they see any wear, give us a call and we'll send them new motor mounts or with instructions about how to replace them. But really, it hasn't been an issue. And we've got 5,000 of these out in the world now. So we think these motor mounts are going to last forever. But so I'm looking at the bottom, the undersurface of the seat now, Turner. What is a motor mount? Right. No, so um, so this the the red plastic shape is what allows the the chair to, to rock. Yeah. Yeah. But you can't just yeah. put it under or it'll slide off. So we have these pieces of uh, rubber that are three quarters of an inch in diameter that stretch a little bit mm-hmm. and hold everything in place. At least in theory, these could wear out over time with you know, following millions of cycles. We haven't seen that, but out of an abundance of caution, so say, yeah, we say rubber bits. People can't see on the camera because we're audio only, but those little rubber bits insert into the, the seat base. Mm-hmm. And, and into the rocker, so they hold everything together. Yeah. And there, there are yeah. two above yeah. and two below, uh, so there's redundancy. If one should fail, it doesn't come apart, but... You'll notice there's a difference in the rocking, and now it's time to fix something. So I'm probably a good tester for this, as I will wobble on your seat a lot. (laughs) Um, We'll see how it goes over the next couple of years. No, you're you're the kind of tester we want. Yeah, yeah. Stories, uh, because people are always interested in what other people think. So you mentioned an 85-year-old who's using it, but... 
you had people who, who just are just falling over themselves with praise for this chair. You know, we have we we have one we put one guy's we made a little video of one guy just talking to the camera where he had back pain so severe he was going to have to give up his 20-year career as the head of information technology at Burton Snowboards here in Burlington, Vermont. And it just so happened that we dropped off a dozen chairs for Burton to try out a few days before. He sat down on one. He was basically perfect within a day. And when it came time to like hand his chair to somebody else, he refused to give it up. He had seniority and wasn't about to get off of this chair. And uh-huh. he, he made a video about just how it was transformative because he really was going to retire. He's, his back hurt him so much. And yeah. so I thought, boy, even if that only happens once, it made it worthwhile to develop this thing. And we've heard that story many times. Yeah, yeah. A similar but tenter story to you. So I was promoting your chair to a client yesterday. Um, now, he runs a medium-sized business. He's an owner-manager of a business that employs about 200 people. And he has the classic executive chair. It's big. It's leather. He can slump back into it. It, it. it gives him this air of he is the man. He is the boss. Nobody else in the company has this kind of chair. And those um, chairs can cost four or even $5,000. It's breathtaking. Yeah, yeah. He is reluctant to give up this chair, I think, largely out of this kind of um, image perspective. And I got him to sit on this, and, and his face lit up because it instantly puts you in this kind of optimal position. Uh, and he said, wow, this is just so different. And he actually used the word floating. Whereas he said, normally I, I just feel trapped in my chair. So he's floating around there and he's smiling. And then he it's, posi- it's positively liberating for people who've been trapped by their you know, massive, expensive piece yeah. of junk. Yeah. But, but then he said, he, looked, he stood up and he looked at it and he said, but but Gavin, it's, it's too small. <laughs> and I said, too small for what? And he said, many of my people walk in and think, you know, is that all he can afford? You know? If it would make him feel better, he can send us a check. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell him, listen, for you, it's $3,000. <laughs> um, maybe that will make him more inclined to spend the money. But um, anyway, on that subject, Turner, what are your plans as a company for future distribution? Are you just focused on the U.S. market or how is it going to work? I, of course, have no idea because I have no experience in the world of business. But my agenda is that we want to get these things under as many people as we can as quickly as we can. We want to change really the way sitting works in the entire world. We've got people in Australia and, and in Taiwan that are gearing up to start building and, and, and distributing our chairs. We're looking for partners really anywhere, and UK as well, because we think that the public health catastrophe of passive sitting is a crisis that has to be addressed immediately. And the way to do it is to make people think that chairs can be fun and can be interesting. And we need like Super Bowl ads. So Super Bowl is like the mm-hmm. biggest mm-hmm. ad opportunity in the United States each year yeah. for American football. We need Super Bowl ads that makes active sitting seem cool in order to help people get to the get past the I just have my slumpy office chair or 
at my big leather chrome slumpy office chair. They're mm. all the same and they're all terrible. So that, that's our goal is we want to have so many active chairs out in the world that when, if somebody sits down on a conventional chair, they'll say, what's wrong with this? It doesn't move. <laughs> mm. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And to that end, we've got a design that we give away for schools uh, for free that we have a different website that or what we call button chairs, B-U-T-O-N. C-H-A-I-R-S dot, dot org. The but on is like a yeah. double entendre intended right. for the middle school set. But yeah. it's made out of plywood. You can stamp them out with a CNC router by the hundreds. Self-locking joints. You don't need any tools to put it together. You just bang it together with a rubber mallet. And for a rocking mechanism, it uses a... We started out using tennis balls because used tennis balls are everywhere and they're free. But we found that when we gave these things to kids in schools here in Burlington, they wore out the tennis balls. They wore holes in them. We switched to lacrosse balls, which are solid rubber that they can't wear out. So our idea is to not just get adults moving, but kids too. So that kids will establish the habit of being responsible for their own posture and being active while they sit. And if you watch kids, they squirm like crazy. They know they should be moving. And when adults tell them to sit still, they're doing them a catastrophic disservice. And we really shouldn't, we really shouldn't be giving bad advice to our children. That's just so wrong. Yeah, absolutely. I'm completely with you on that. They move because they need to move. And adults too. Adults may have forgotten, but they need to move too. Yeah. Does the company have a mission statement? We do. And the mission statement is we are going to make these things so goddamn cheap that everyone will have one. And we're constantly looking for ways to make a less expensive version of our chair. And there's, we've got prototypes on the horizon that uh, we, we think are, it's going to be hard to beat free. We give away the button chairs for kids, but we need a little more adult one. That, but anyway, we're working to, and that's the challenge of it. The challenge isn't to make a gazillion dollars. The challenge is to make these things so solid and so inexpensive that everybody can have one. and so attractive that people will want them. It sounds like you've got a team in place that are, striving to do that. Yeah, no, it's a great team. And I love it because these kids are half or a third my age. They can do website design and optimization and graphics and all that stuff. And, and I just get to, you know, putter in the basement inventing these things and, and scheming about how we can get them under more people. Yeah. And you and I get to ch- chat about it as well. Exactly. Yeah. I've met so many interesting people. Yeah. In, in, in fact, we had a terrific phone call with the uh, inventors of the Vivo Barefoot shoe a couple of days ago and and their you know and their idea was shoes are terrible for people's feet and if we could just set the foot free all of its architecture would work so much better and Mm -hmm. that's what we yeah and so we had a very animated conversation about we're really on the same page the human body really wants to be free and it does so much better when it's unconstrained and they figured it out for feet and and we're trying to get the idea for, for chairs next yeah, I'm a big fan of Vivo. I'm actually wearing some Vibrams at the moment, which are similar to Vivo. They have the separate tools in them. And when I was talking to the Vivo, it's a father-son team, actually, that, that invented them, just like our company is a father-son team. Yeah. And they were very frank. They said, the Vibrams are terrific. And the more people are wearing shoes like this, the better. Mm-hmm. We're happy to have competitors that are helping people walk better. So I, I love their, their DNA. They're just trying to mm-hmm. change the way people walk, and they'll take any help they can get no one is a competitor yeah yeah great 
I think we've covered a fair bit of ground, Tony. <laughs> I think we may be over time. I don't know. We've talked for a while now. Uh, that's good. So the obvious question, if people want to know more about your chairs, where do they go? We have a website, Q as in Queen, QOR360.com. It's Core360. We, we couldn't get any words that start with C because they were all taken. So we've got <laughs> QOR360.com. We'll take you to our website and basically everything's there. I write a blog and there are videos and it drones on for, I'm a research professor, so it goes on and on. But it's anything you might want to know is there and there are links to other stuff. Great, great. And as I said, I highly recommend the chair and we'll put links both within this podcast episode, but also on our website to your site. Terrific. So, yeah, and, and maybe we can uh, continue the conversation about UK distribution off, offline. Turn-off. Oh, yeah, no, we're looking for partners because, as I say, we just want to get these things out into the world. And we're, we're ramping up manufacturing ability on this end of the equation. So now we need help getting them out into the world on the other end of the equation. Yeah, great. Good. Okay. Enjoy. It must still be morning time, your time. It's it is. It's a brilliant sunshine day. This is, this is, you're looking out on Lake Champlain, uh, which is still frozen, but it's going to be 60 degrees today here in, in Vermont. It's that wonderful uh, cusp between winter and summer where the lake is frozen, but it, it feels like you should be swimming. <laughs> mm, nice. Nice. I've enjoyed the views. You won't see it on the podcast, but hey, we'll do You'll have to go to Vermont one day if you want to see that. Well, come visit. I, I just got my second jab of, of the Pfizer vaccine. So pretty soon we're all going to be traveling again. And I've, I've met a lot of people online now that I want to meet in, in the real world. Absolutely. Silver lining. Great. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time, Turner. And all the very best with uh, all of your developments. Okay. That is it. That, as they say, is a wrap. Thanks to Turner. I have no doubt I'll be speaking to him again soon. I've really enjoyed sitting on this chair. Um, As I said in the intro, it has become my favourite chair and I have a long string of chairs under my belt, as it were, over the years. So that's it. As ever, if you would like a free assessment, and by the way, um, if you do the free assessment at backpainandsciatica.com, you can find out whether you are flexion intolerant or extension intolerant or neither or both. Um, and the relevance of that when it comes to sitting is if you are flexion intolerant, this chair and active sitting in particular is super, super relevant. So if you haven't already done it, do the free assessment at backpainandsciatica.com. And as ever, otherwise, any comments, fire them through and I'll see you on the next episode. Okay, out for now. Thanks for listening to the Active X Backs show. If you'd like a free assessment to set you on track to relief and prevention, just go to backpainandsciatica.com. And if you found this episode helpful, please pass it along to your friends and colleagues. And please leave us a positive review on iTunes. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at ActiveXPacks.